We're going to go into the Belgic Confession this morning, and I have to say that uh, I had not planned to do it, and so I'm thankful for uh, the faithfulness of our brother Blake in sending me his notes this morning as we walk through this. But we're going to put the, the Article 7 up on the screens of the Belgic Confession, and I'm um, going to invite you to read this with me. It is rather lengthy this morning. But uh, I want to invite you to read it along with me. And so here we go this morning. Belgic Confession, Article 7, The Sufficiency of Scripture. We believe that this Holy Scripture contains the will of God completely and that everything one must believe to be saved is sufficiently taught in it. For since the entire manner of service which God requires of us is described in it at great length, no one, even an apostle or an angel from heaven, as Paul says, ought to teach other than what the Holy Scriptures have already taught us. For since it is forbidden to add to the Word of God or take away anything from it, it is plainly demonstrated that the teaching is perfect and complete in all respects. Therefore, we must not consider human writings, no matter how holy their authors may have been, equal to the divine writings. Nor may we put custom, nor the majority, nor age, nor the passage of times or persons, nor councils, decrees, or official decisions above the truth of God. For truth is above everything else. For all human beings are liars by nature and more vain than vanity itself. Therefore, we reject with all our hearts everything that does not agree with this infallible rule, as we are taught to do by the apostles when they say, test the spirits to see whether they are from God, and also do not receive into the house or welcome anyone who comes to you and does not bring this teaching. Amen. That is Belgic Confession, Article 7, talking about the sufficiency of Scripture. And as uh, we dig into this, last week we began uh, Article 7, and Blake did a very good job of doing a broad overview. And I just want to remind you that we have begun to record uh, these small little snippets of our uh, time together in the Confession. Uh, and so we're going to begin to load those. Uh, we already began last week loading uh, each article uh, together by itself, apart from the sermon, into the SoundCloud on our podcast so that you can go back and listen to it. I know there have been several times for myself when Blake has uh, brought something forth out of the confession and I'm like, wait, that was really good. And I should have been writing it down. I uh, love that just I was in the back just a minute ago. I saw one of our sisters had her paper out, Belgic confession written at the top, ready to take some notes. I love that. And uh, I encourage you that if you want to do that, to do that. And also to let you know that we do now have that resource where you can go back and listen uh, to the things that have been expounded upon. So last week, we examined the sufficiency of Scripture in salvation. We found that it was Scripture which reveals God's will in what one must believe to be saved. And that any other wills not conformed to His are to be rejected and affirmed against. And so today, 
we look at this same topic, but in regards to Scripture's sufficiency for worship. So last week we looked at Scripture's sufficiency informing us about salvation, and this week we look to Scripture's sufficiency informing us about worship. And so as Article 7 continues, it goes past the general will of God to His particular will for our worship of Him. Though the translation we are using states, for since the entire manner of service, what this has also been translated as in other English versions is for since the whole manner of worship. And if one goes to the Latin, it is even stronger as something along the lines of the whole account of divine worship described exactly and in great detail. Okay, The Reformed Confession here sought to make something known explicitly that we worship according to the word of God and not according to the dictates and traditions of men. And so a couple of things were happening in history at the time of the Belgic Confession. We had uh, Rome who was saying this is how we ought to worship God. And yet the, the word of God itself as well as the forms of worship were not in the language of the, the ordinary common people. And there was no way for them to check what they were supposed to be doing according to the Word of God. Because not only did they not have the Word of God, if they had it, they couldn't have read it anyways. And as they began to get the Word of God in their own language, and as Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and other reformers at that time began to expound on what the Word of God said, they found out that the way they were worshiping perhaps was not how God had actually instructed to be worshipped. And so they begin to make changes. Also, what was happening at that same time was a group called the Anabaptists, who also were busy constructing worship services that were not in accordance with the Word of God. And so here in the Belgic Confession, they, make, they take great pains in explaining that we are not to worship according to the dictates or the mandates of men, but rather God who is holy, who has given us his revealed word, has actually instructed us how we are to worship him. And so this manner of service or divine worship as most accurately translated was not speaking of our everyday worship in our lives as we seek to do all things to the glory of God, but rather this topic is on the particular public service the congregation, the body of Christ, offers to its Lord together. This portion, no doubt, was inspired by Calvin himself, who said in regards to the difference between the Reformers and Rome, quote, the second principal point in which we differ from the custom and opinion received in the world is the manner of serving or worshiping God. Now, on our part, in accordance with his declaration that obedience is better than sacrifice, and with his uniform injunction to listen to what he commands, if we would render a well-regulated and acceptable sacrifice, we hold that it is not for us to invent to us what seems good or to follow what may have been devised in the brains of other men, but to confine ourselves simply to the purity of Scripture. Wherefore, we believe that anything which is not derived from it but has only been commanded by the authority of men, ought not to be regarded as the service of God. And so, um, in the church who has 
held to this belief in the Reformed faith, there has always been this peculiar notion that God alone gets to decide how He wants to be worshipped by His people. And this stood in stark contrast, as I said, to Rome uh, and how they conducted their services. But uh, what else does it stand in stark contrast to? Well, we must acknowledge that we live in an age in which many Protestant churches share many similarities to Rome and to how Rome constructed its worship. The Belgic confessed against uh, Rome in regards to worship and even in salvation, and the practices may not be the same, but the root problem is the same today. Why? Because Scripture is not considered to be sufficient for our theology of worship. We can see today how the lack of theological foundations has led to a free-for-all, or a free-fall, you could say, in the worship of evangelical churches. This can come in very many forms, uh, some more explicit, some more implicit. Some in-your-face forms might be found in circles where individuals uh, come to worship God and find themselves rolling around on the floor, laughing uh, like they're possessed during a worship service. Uh, or the pastor of a church being a woman when God has prescribed qualified and called men to that role. But this can even take a more subtle approach that may have the best intentions. For example, where in Scripture are we told to do an altar call? Have you perhaps had a visitor uh, who has come and visited with you here at Redemption Hill uh, ask you why we don't do an altar call? Uh, that's a question that I've had to field in the past, and I know others have as well. Um, or even to things which will become very popular as Christmas time comes. Last year, uh, Christmas fell on a Sunday, uh, the Lord's Day. And there were many churches that decided, with the best intentions, um, to forego worship of the Lord on the Lord's Day for the sake of family gatherings and, and those kinds of things. Now... It is important for us to maintain, even as we're in Ephesians chapter 4, and remember what Paul is calling us to, to be eager to maintain unity in the bond of peace. And so this is not to say, uh, hey, we do everything right. We don't. Um, this is not to say everyone else is wrong. They're not, necessarily. But this is to call us back to the sufficiency of Scripture to be reminded that we can have confidence in the Word of God and we can rest in the ways that God has prescribed that He is to be worshipped. Uh, and so uh, where we would depart from where the culture at large may decide to go is where uh, in Scripture we're told to worship the Lord on the Lord's Day. And so we're going to do that. Here in a few weeks we're going to take November 5th, and together we're going to go and have a great time in the park together. We're going to share a potluck meal together, and there'll probably be activities for those who want to engage in activities at the concluding of the worship of the Lord on the Lord's day. We will not forego the worship of the Lord on His day. 
uh, for anything less. These practices stem from a lack of confidence that in scriptures we find exactly and in great detail how we are to worship the God who has made us, saved us on the Lord's day. Because of man-made inventions in worship, no matter how good the intention, Protestant worship today has more in common with Rome than its historic roots, and we affirm against this. We find God's word sufficient for salvation and worship, and we find God needs no aid in new ways, for his will is perfect and complete and clear in these matters. I'm aware that it is perhaps a bold thing to link Rome and modern-day Protestants, but remember this confession was aimed against both Rome and the Anabaptists, the latter which may have many connections to today's American church. And there is a very timely resource on this that came out from Michael Horton on the White Horse Inn podcast titled The Radical Reformation. Uh, That was the podcast from October 8th, which delves into more detail on that topic, and I do encourage you to listen to it. It was very good. So Article 7, the sufficiency of Scripture in worship. And so how should this inform us as Redemption Hill? It should inform us that as we continue to progress and mature as a church, as we continue to grow in the wisdom and the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, not just as individuals, but as a body, that as we continue to evaluate how we worship, um, the, the decisions that we make and where we will worship, how we will worship, Um, we need to remember that Scripture actually informs these things. And we need to call ourselves and each other to go back to the Word of God and allow the Word of God to dictate our worship together. Amen? Amen.